we stand in the presence of God's word. When they had come near Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples saying, Go into the village. You will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Just say this, the Lord needs them. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, Who is this? This is the word of the Lord. When one reads gospel parallels in the Greek, it's very easy to see that Matthew and Luke are copying Mark. Mark's gospel is oldest and briefest. There are sometimes entire paragraphs where they do not vary even a word, which makes it even more interesting when they do decide to move in a slightly different direction. When Matthew and Luke choose to add something or change something just a little bit, at least I find it so, let's look at today's text. The first thing I noticed when I looked at these parallels is that Mark says, go into the village, you will find a colt, bring it. Matthew says, go into the village, you will find a donkey and a colt. Now, that may not seem significant, but why would he change it? I mean, if he's obviously liking what he's reading here, why does suddenly he inject this donkey and a colt? Well, it's because he's quoting from the prophet Zechariah. Handel knew this prophet. He included it in his Messiah. The soprano soloist gets that part. A few years ago, Aaron Studebaker was asked for the first time to sing that in our presentation. Her father has been distinguished head of choral music at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah for many years. He's also directed the Tulsa Oratorio Chorus for many years, and he told his daughter, I don't think you can sing that fast. <laughs> she said she thought she could. Her father came from Tahlequah to hear the performance that night, and she could, and she did. And what she sang, of course, was rejoice, rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king cometh he unto you, seated on a donkey cometh he unto you. Much has been written lately about the election of the pope. I've seen various articles in religious publications, but I was interested in the one in the Wall Street Journal, not a religious publication. Peggy Noonan was writing about being in Rome herself. Three days, she said, it had been pouring down rain. It rained and rained and then rained some more. The wind was blowing, sometimes thunder and lightning. And then suddenly, late Wednesday, the puff of white smoke. 
and the pealing of the bells and a hundred thousand people came running. It was unbelievable, she said. A hundred thousand people came running. And before the curtain was drawn, before the name was given, before anyone saw the result of the balloting, I saw people weeping. I felt a tear coming to my own eyes, spilling down over my cheek as we huddled under those umbrellas. You see, I think what a hundred thousand of us were saying is, we need God in our lives. We need him. Whatever your name, whoever you are, if you can come from behind that curtain and lead us closer to him, we will be ready for you to do that. We need God in our lives. Palm Sunday. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice greatly. Behold, your king cometh unto you. Number two. That part about being lowly and humble and seated on a donkey, Dr. Tankersley alluded to this wonderfully well in his prayer that from one direction that same day was coming Pontius Pilate. They had already seen great men of war before. In the year 332 before the Common Era, Alexander the Great rode into the city of Jerusalem on a great war horse. There are lots of words written about his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a war horse. And Jesus comes from the east, riding on a burro, his toes almost dragging the ground. Anything significant there? Ernest Shirtliff was born in Boston, Massachusetts, 1862. That was a year after the great civil war began in our country. Of course, he was far too young to be involved in that war, but as he became an elementary student, he was aware of other children in school with him who had lost a father in that war, others who had lost grandfathers in that war. When he got out of high school, he decided that he was being called to be a minister. When he was graduated from college, he felt he needed more education, and he went to Andover Seminary in Massachusetts. It was the first mainline seminary in the United States to ask ministers to go to college seven years. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all founded to educate clergy, but all of them had a four-year program. Four-year program, then a degree, then you apprentice under some very well-known pastor. Andover Seminary decided it isn't enough. Four years, not enough, you need seven. And seminaries all over America went to that plan 150 years ago. A long, long time ago, we started sending and requiring that clergy in our mainline denominations go to college a minimum of seven years. He became a distinguished pastor. He served a great church in Minneapolis, a great church in Los Angeles, then decided to go to Europe and founded a, a great church in Frankfurt on the Mime River uh, in Germany, and from there went on to pastor a church in Paris where he died. But you will remember what he did one time, he wrote a hymn called Lead On, O King Eternal. And it includes these words, Lead On, O King Eternal. Not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Number three, 
Mark says Jesus told the disciples. Matthew says he commanded them. Changes the word. When St. Jerome would translate the scriptures into Latin, he used that word right here, mandatus. Jesus would command the disciples on Thursday night after he had washed their feet, love each other as I've loved you. Even on Sunday, he commands them, and they do what they're told to do. The first time Gail and our two sons went to Europe, we bought a package deal with old TWA Airlines, seven countries in 14 days. You don't see a great deal, but you decide right away whether you like it or not, and we loved it. The first time we were in Florence, we were there just maybe three hours or so, as I recall. They rush you into the main piazza, and you see Ghiberti's doors called the Gates of Paradise on the baptistry there. They rush you into the Uffizi Palace, and you see Michelangelo's David boy. But Gail and I have been back twice since by train where we could stay as pretty much as long as we wanted to. We've seen hundreds of the treasures in the Uffizi Palace. We've been in the beautiful Basilica of Santa Croce, the Holy Cross. There are frescoes on the walls inside Santa Croce painted in the late 1300s by Agnolo Gaudi. Gradually, over 600 years, they had been dimmed by smoke from candles. Five years now, some of the best art restorers in all of Italy have been working on those frescoes, and now they've been released for viewing again. Agnolo Gaudi decided to concentrate his frescoes on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There it is in the Garden of Eden story when first Homo sapiens decided to trust a talking snake and not the God who had created the universe. And having trusted the snake, they picked the fruit and ate. Now, Gaudi imagined that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil might be something like trees he knew in Italy who dropped seeds, acorns of one kind or another, and new little trees sprout. And so his frescoes take you to significant moments down through the centuries where he imagines that tree's offshoots becoming something important until finally one of the offshoots of that tree becomes the cross of Jesus. Santa Croce, the Holy Cross, that humans, having made this decision to trust the talking snake instead of the God of the universe and therefore transgressed, finally had a human, one in whom God was present, who didn't trust talking snakes, who trusted the God of the universe and did as he was told and commanded that those who would follow him do the same. Number four, Mark says, the people, the people spread their cloaks. No, Matthew says, it wasn't just people, crowds. There were crowds. Finally, he says, great crowds. 
taking off their outer garments and spreading them in front of the burro and Jesus and others cutting branches from the trees and strewing them in front of him. And when Jesus entered the city, it was Isaistha, he writes. Isaistha, from which we get the word seismos, seismography. It's a word used along that fault line of the Jordan River Valley for earthquakes. When Jesus rode into the city, it started shaking. They were in great turmoil, your translator says, in turmoil, and everybody asking, who is this? I read an article recently about Nell Harper Lee. In a few weeks, she'll be 87 years old. She lives in an assisted living center now. She's wheelchair-bound. She's almost completely blind and deaf. But one time she wrote a novel, just one. It sold 30 million copies. She was born in Monroeville, Alabama. Her daddy was a small-town lawyer. She was a tomboy who liked to play outside. She had a little playmate when she was growing up. His name was Truman Capote. Her father, one time, was attorney for a father and son, a black father and a black son who had been accused of killing a white man. She must have heard stories around the supper table at night from her father. He gave the case everything he had. His life was threatened. People threatened to burn their house down. The two black men were found guilty and hanged. When she became a woman, she was graduated from the University of Alabama, did additional studies at Oxford University, and then went to New York City to see if she could write a book. And she called it To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird about a small town lawyer named Atticus Finch, who had a tomboy daughter she called Scout, who played with a kid named Dill in her book, a father who defends a black man against the charge of raping a white woman, who proves conclusively that the man could not have committed the crime. The jury finds him guilty anyway. The courtroom is packed as the verdict is read. Downstairs, all white people, a little balcony, all black, except for the lawyer's daughter, Scout. She's sitting with the black people in the balcony. When the verdict is announced, the white people all stand and cheer and start hugging each other, and they rush out of the courtroom. Atticus Finch, played in the movie by Gregory Peck, gathers up his papers, stuffs them into a briefcase, and starts walking out. Little scout up in the balcony was sitting by the black preacher, and he caught her by the arm and lifted her and said, Stand up, child your father is passing by. 